Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Well, good morning. Well, you recovered from Thanksgiving yet? Oh man, last service, it was a sad sight. You ever see a dead congregation? They're right here. There is like, they're all still getting over the tryptophan or whatever it was. But uh, we woke them up and we were having a great time by the end. But uh, uh, so I'm doing a little survey uh, for the congregation just to see who the earliest shoppers of the weekend were. And so, um, so I want to see your hands. If you went out the day after Thanksgiving, you know, Black Friday, and you went out shopping, um, say like at five o'clock in the morning, were you up by, up by five? Okay, we got, we, got, we got someone here. Okay, I got some hands. Yes, all right. Okay, anyone before five? Oh, oh, we got some quick hands back here. Let's go right back here. Yeah, to a gentleman right back here. What time? 11.40. Did you go to like the outlet sale centers? You went to the outlet centers over in Camarillo, right? They open up at midnight. And so, and so and then you, how late were you up? At nine o'clock next day. Okay, you win. You win. All weekend, you get the grand prize. I'm not sure what it is yet, but we'll, uh, we'll work on that. That's great. Uh, 11 o'clock, I heard about that. You know, I, I was at the Ralph Lauren store like last year about this time, and I talked to a lady there, and she had said that, you know, they open up at midnight for those sales, and she said that they had gone there 11.30, just kind of, you know, driven there 11.30, thought we'd get there early, and they had to wait in a line hour and a half to get into the Ralph Lauren store over in uh, Camarillo, that there's no spots in the whole parking lot, in the whole place. So it was crazy. All right. All right. So, okay, well, I'm glad I got that settled. You win the prize. And so, uh, and you're here at church, too. That's great. You're still recovering from that. So, hey, uh, if this is your first time at Rocky Peak, we want to welcome you. We don't do a survey like this every week. Um, we're in the midst of a series right now uh, on uh, spiritual warfare, and it's called the, the War, the Story Behind the Story. And inside of your weekend program is a white message note sheet. If you want to take that out, that'll help you follow along <coughs> for our time of uh, teaching today, and then we'll, we'll launch in. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our church. Thank you what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in this series as you're pulling back the veil, helping us to see behind the scenes this battle that's been going on since the beginning of time, what we're up against, and what it takes to win. And so today, Lord, as we come and talk about spiritual warfare at the highest level, the level of ideas, God, I pray you to open our minds to see new things we've never seen before and help us understand what it takes to win this battle. We pray in your name. Amen. So I still remember the day. It was, uh, I, I'm guessing I was about 16, I'm not sure exactly, but it was, a, it was a warm afternoon in our little hometown, and uh, I can't remember if the winter or exactly what time of the year, but it was a warm afternoon, and I decided to go to see a movie by myself, and so in those days, you go down, we only had one theater in our hometown, and there was long before the day of multiplexes, and so in those days, you'd go, you buy a ticket, and uh, the price of admission, you get to see two films. And so there would be like uh, just, a, you know, one big screen, no multiplex thing. So you get to see two films for the price of one. There would always be a first film that was like your B-level movie, uh, low cost, low production, uh, uh, low interest. <laughs> and, uh, and then you would get to see your A-level feature film that you really wanted to see. It was just a little bonus thing. And so I went in, got my ticket, went in that day. And the, uh, the, the B-level movie that day was sort of a futuristic type film. It was uh, some kind of combination of letters and numbers. Like, I can't remember, like, 
FX215 or something like that. I, I can't remember. And, uh, and so then there was a second film that I really wanted to see, and it was actually not the first time this film was released. Uh, it was the second time it was released. I, I guess they're just bringing it back, at least in our small hometown. And, uh, and it was a famous movie. It, it had won picture, uh, it had won award at the Golden Globes for, uh, for the best picture of the year when it came out. It won five Academy Awards for uh, like best cinematography, best original musical score, and it was a movie, uh, Dr. Zhivago. And so uh, some of you will remember that movie or saw it in the History Channel. <laughs> anyway, um, so... Anyway, so, uh, so I, I go in, and, and both, of these, uh, both of these films that day made a major impression on me. They, they both had a big impact, um, and, and they both had uh, kind of plots that involved sexual immorality that, that sort of played a central role in this plot. Now, the first film, this FX215 or whatever it was, was a futuristic film. It was set in the far distant future, kind of a space age thing. It was, all sh- it was shot in like all whites and grays, and so it had this sterile, uh, kind of sterile scientific uh, kind of type feel to it. And it was set in the distant future when, when men and women no longer would marry and have kids, but the state was in control of kind of this brave new world. And so in order to populate their, their world, what they would do is they would assign a man and a woman to come together and couple together, have a sexual relationship in this central laboratory area or whatever. And then if the woman would conceive when she would give birth to the child, the child was taken away to be raised by a big brother to be indoctrinated in the propaganda of the state. And, um, but in the movie, there was this one really explicit uh, sex scene. Um, I, I think it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like this on the big screen. A very explicit graphic sexual scene uh, frontal nudity, I think that's why I, I remember it. And, um, you know, the first time that, uh, that I, I remember something like that. And so, so it was right there, it was out there. And, okay, so then we had an intermission, and then it was time to go for, for the movie I really came to see, Dr. Shivago. And, and it also involved sexual immorality, um, but in a much more muted, uh, kind of a low-key type of way. And so uh, if you've ever seen that movie, uh, it's a story about this young Russian poet turned doctor, and it, it, uh, he, he's handsome, uh, he's bright, he's uh, sensitive, he's charming, and he, he's, he's uh, living in the first 20 years of the 20th century, which is a time of, of great uh, crisis in the land of, of Russia. There was the, the whole Bolshevik revolution and the overthrow of the monarchy, the rise of communism, and then World War I thrown in there, so it was a very difficult time. It was a brutal time to live in Russia. And it was a story of this young man caught in the midst of this struggle for survival in this, this war-torn country, and, uh, and in, his, in his struggle for meaning. And in his, his struggle along the way, he meets a woman, they fall in love. I think her name was Tonya or something like that. They had a little son named, um, uh, they, they got married, they fell in love, they uh, end up having a little son named Sasha. And they're married several years, like eight years or something like that. And then, uh, and then he's, in, he's involved in the war effort, and so in the war effort, this, his, he's a doctor, of course, he meets this, this young and beautiful um, nurse. I mean, she was just stunning, I remember. Uh, she was, uh, you know, the, the blonde hair, the blue eyes, just stunning. And, and there's a chemistry between them. And so now in this movie, you've got this tension going on, like what sh- what's he going to do? His wife just loves and adores him, very devoted wife, you know, that had a good relationship, and yet he's got this new love interest, beautiful, charming, boy, there's electricity, you know, there's chemistry all over the place, and what's going to happen? And so he chooses to have an affair with this woman. 
Now, I don't remember a lot about the, the sex scenes. I don't think they're really graphic as I remember it. I don't remember any nudity or anything like that. Um, all I remember is the beauty of the scenery. Uh, it, was, it was amazing cinematography, this musical score. I, I remember um, scenes in my mind of these of, um, kind of huge mountains, snow-covered mountains and pine forests, this little cabin with the smoke coming out where they'd have their rendezvous. And so that's kind of what I remember about this, this powerful, but, but it was very powerful, very, very epic feeling. And so then, so the movie ends, and so both movies had impacted me greatly that day. Um, and so I'm walking out of the theater, and I'm standing there on the sidewalk, and I'm reflecting on this as a young Christ follower. And, and what struck me that day of, the, of these two films, it was really the second film, Dr. Shivago, that was more dangerous than the first. We're going to come back to that. Today we're continuing on this series that we've been in the last couple of weeks, called The War, uh, the story behind the story. And one thing, it's, 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 it's a series about spiritual warfare, and one thing is very clear as you open the pages of the New Testament that as far-fetched as it may seem to many in our modern Western mindset, um, that the New Testament is very clear, Jesus is very clear, that you and I are caught up in a cosmic war, a battle that's been going on from the very beginning of time, and that we have an enemy, that he's strategic, that he's brilliant, he's a genius, and he's powerful. And he's out to destroy us, and not just you and I, he's out to destroy the whole human race. And so every week we've been going kind of behind the scenes to take a look at this unseen battle and what the Word teaches us about it. If you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that the first week we studied the backstory to this war. Um, How did this war get started? What's its history? Who are the players? What's the plot? Um, last week we talked about the stakes at, in this war. What's at stake? If Satan has his way in your life, what will that look like? If we follow him, what happens? Where does that path lead? Well, today, this week and next weekend, we want to start talking about his strategies. So today we're calling it Strategies Part 1. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare on the highest level, the level of ideas. So next week we'll come back and we'll talk about Strategies Part 2 which is the level of individual temptation, all right? But today the topic is ideas. Now, here's what I'd suggest. I would suggest that for most of us, if I were to ask you, like before this message, okay, so what do you think are Satan's top strategies to destroy us? The first thing would come into most of our minds is a strategy of temptation, that he tries to get us to do things that he knows will destroy our lives, things that we want to do, things that we know we shouldn't do, but that we... He tempts us to do in a way of destroying us. I think that's, and probably most of us have an area or two of our life that we say, man, if I'm going to fall, this is where it is. Uh, most of us understand temptation. We know temptation. And so, so our mind goes there. Uh, but what I'm suggesting today, that that's not really spiritual warfare at the highest level. It's very serious warfare. We're going to talk about it next week. But that spiritual warfare at the highest level is at the level of our minds, a level of our thinking. And here's the reason. If Satan can control the way you think, if he can control the way I think, if he can control the way our culture thinks, he can control the whole world. And I want to start today with a couple passages of Scripture that we looked at the very first week of this series. They're there in your note sheet. So let's take a look. 
One of the concepts, and you'll be, you'll be studying this in your life groups this week, is the New Testament's very clear that this world is under the power of the evil one, and that when we become a Christ follower, we, he pulls us out of the world. Now, we're still in the world, but we're not to be like the world anymore. It's different thought patterns. And so these two passages that talk about the world and the world system. First one, uh, Ephesians 2.2 from the New Living Translation. It's just very clear. <clears throat> it says, you, you used to live like the rest of the world. So before a person comes to Jesus, we're part of this world system. We, we're just in it. And he says, uh, and we were full of sin, and we were obeying Satan. Whether we knew it or not, we were obeying Satan. And he is called the mighty prince of the power of the air. In your life groups this week, Jesus will call him the prince of the earth, prince of this world. And now he's the spirit that's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So here's a a classic New Testament look at this world. This world is a dark planet. It's the fallen planet. This world is is being orchestrated and led by these powers behind the scene, the dark powers, uh, the ruler of this world, the prince of this world. All right, let's look at the next one, 1 John 5, 19. Um, John writes and says, we know that we are children of God. In other words, now that we've come to Jesus, we've been born again, we're children of God, and the whole world is under the control of whom? The evil one. You see that? Very much a New Testament perspective, this is the fallen planet, it's under the control of the evil one. Now the question is, how does Satan control this world? How does he do that? And obviously there's more than one way. One way is what we'll talk about next week, temptation, by getting us to do things that are against our best interests. He can control the world. We understand that. But the bigger way he controls it is in the realm of ideas. Because, again, if he can control the way we think at a global, at a macro level, he can control our actions at the micro level. So, for example, let's go back to the story that we started the day with, the story of uh, the the tale of two movies. Okay, so I'm standing there on the sidewalk afterwards, and and I'm sort of in an emotional backwash because both movies have hit me kind of hard for different reasons. I've recognized um, that the the evil in the first movie was kind of obvious. You know, you have this graphic, sexual, gratuitous sex scene, all the nudity. It's a 16-year-old boy, man, young man. Uh, obviously, you're drawn to that, and it creates a hunger for an illicit desire, right? And so there's a temptation there. And the temptation would be to pursue that more in your life. So, so whether it's through magazines or other movies or some kind of relationship, you want to go down the dark path towards illicit sexuality, okay? So, so understand that. that but, but, but that's a temptation that I was familiar with, right? I mean, this is an old one. This is nothing surprising. It's nothing new. It's like, I get that. It's blatant, right? But the second one was much more subtle. Because here's what I realized that day. That as I was in the movie, I mean, this was the most powerful movie I'd ever seen to that day. I mean, it was beautiful. It was epic. It was amazing. It was one of those movies you lose yourself in. It's powerful. And what I realized was in the midst of this movie that I am rooting for this man to have an affair. It's the first time in my life in a movie that it ever happened. For, I'm rooting for him to have an affair. That this woman is so beautiful, the chemistry is so powerful, that, that they're in the midst of this war-torn land, 
He's trying to make sense of life. And along comes this love that is like a, it's like a, it's a shelter in the midst of a storm. And it seems so perfect, and it seems so passionate, and it seems so pure, and, the, and the, the scenery is so beautiful, and it's up there in the mountains, and it's so romantic, and their connection is powerful, and the smoke coming up the chimney, and the fireplace, and the whole thing, and you just, and I find myself fighting within myself in this movie, because I, I'm kind of hoping that he goes for it. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm standing on the sidewalk afterwards, how did that happen? I, I'm a Christ follower. I don't believe in affairs. And yet somehow it was so powerful, it had me switching sides. Now, let me say this. I've never seen that movie since. I don't even know if this is a fair portrayal of it. Like, so if you're in the movie or something, don't take it personally. But I'm saying, just go back with me. Imagine I'm 16, you know, go back with me to that day. I'm 16 years old. My hair's out to here. You're there? <laughs> Remember, it's the 70s, right? Peace out. And so, uh, okay, so, so I'm there, and I'm just like, wow. And what struck me was the evil of that, that this beautiful, powerful, romantic epic movie had me rooting for something that I would tell you at the core I would never before. Uh, That's spiritual warfare at the highest level. You see, what was happening there was was the enemy was sowing seeds. And the the seeds was this. Okay, Mike, it's fine. It's fine to uh, be committed to marriage, to be be loyal, to to love your wife, and to be faithful. That's all fine. Hey, but there may come a day in your life when, when it's just like all bets are off. The right person, the right place, the power of connection is so strong that if you really want to grab for the ring in life, if you really want to go for it, that's the day, that's the chance you have to take, you see? Let's step back from that movie. Let's talk about, let's just talk about the big idea. This is an example of sexual morality in our whole culture in the last 50 years. Let's, let's, rewind, let's rewind the clock back to the 1950s, okay? So you go back to the 1950s. I think there was sort of a, a general consensus in our country at that point. Not that everyone lived by this, uh, but, you know, if you're in the military, obviously, you know it's not true, but there was kind of a general consensus that, Sex was sort of for marriage. You married a woman, you wanted to marry someone who was a virgin, right? I mean, that was just kind of thing. Now, you might mess around over here, but you, this is kind of thing. I mean, remember that TV shows back in the 50s uh, when they first came out? You didn't even have, like, married couples in different beds in the same room, right? Okay, so this was kind of our cultural norm. So, now, did people have illicit sex in the 50s? Well, of course they did. But let's take these two teenagers, let's say, and they're in the, the front seat of a car, and they're trying to decide whether to move in the back seat. And now Satan's got to convince them that even though this is wrong, it's worth it. Right? This is what temptation is. I know it's wrong, but it's worth it. We'll talk more about that next week. Now let's fast forward to the 1960s. We go through a, a, a cultural revolution, a sexual revolution. In the 60s, all bets are off, and our culture began to buy, buy into this thing that's very normative now, that sex is fine. 
Doesn't matter. It's premarital, extramarital, one person, group sex, same sex, opposite. Doesn't really matter as long as you're two consenting adults. It's fine, right? And so that, that idea began in the 60s. Now, so if you are Satan and you want to destroy the sexual connection that God has designed for marriage in our country, if you want to tear apart families, if you want to destroy people via their sexuality, if you want to strip away their identity and make them thin in their soul, if you want to do that, which do you think is the more effective way? To, in the 1950s, to attack couples one by one to get them to give into a temptation, or in the 60s, to convince a whole culture that wrong is right and right is wrong? Can you see the power? And there's not even a question which is more powerful. Because once I convince a culture that, that wrong is right and right is wrong, I don't even have to tempt you. You will just self-destruct on your own. You see? You see how it's so much more powerful? Okay. There, and that's why, that's why the, the uh, spiritual warfare at the highest level is the level of our minds. Because if he can control the theories the paradigms of a culture, he can control the culture. There you know, cheat. but a great quote from uh, Dallas Willard. You know, Dallas is one of the profs. He's a, US, a philosophy prof at USC. I think he's one of the greatest Christian thinkers of our current day. He wrote a book called Renovation in the Heart, one little section on spiritual warfare. He says, these high-level powers and forces, and he's talking about these demonic forces now, the unseen world, that's the context. These higher-level powers and forces are spiritual agencies that work with, constantly try to implement and support, catch this, the idea systems of evil. These systems are their main tool for dominating humanity. If you want to control the world, control the way the world thinks. See? Now, here's what I want to do. I've given you one example of how that works in the area of sexuality. You control how we think as a culture. You control how the culture acts our choices we make. I want to give you three more examples there. And so on your note sheet, you have that section called spiritual warfare at the highest level, three big picture ideas. And what I want to do in the time we have today is I want to take three examples of big picture ideas that are having a huge impact on our culture right now. They're very diverse. One is very much every man idea. It's just like we all face one. It's very common. The second one comes from the area of science. The third one comes from the area of religion or our relationship with God. Okay? And what I want to do is just use these as examples. And here's what we're going to see in each case. What I want to do in each case is say, here's the big picture idea that the dark side is propagating. Now, if you give to this, if you buy into this idea, here are the implications. Here's the trickle-down effect of that, okay? So if Satan can convince a culture this is true, here are the repercussions, the automatic repercussions are going to happen. I'm just give you three examples, all right? Okay, number one, the first one is not a, you're going to like, wow, Mike, really insightful. Uh, number one, uh, the first big picture idea is materialism. This is very everyman. It's very much common. We all deal with this. The point is, as followers of Jesus, to the extent we buy in to our culture's ideas in these areas is to the extent that we will miss God's plan for our life. Okay? So the first one is materialism. Now, by t- materialism, let me define it this way. Materialism just is, you know, it's an old idea. It's been around forever. But it basically says if you want to be truly happy in life, the key is to have the right stuff. 
Okay? Keys where I have stuff. And so if you want to be happy in life, you need this boat, you need this house, you need this new kind of car, uh, you need to make X amount of money, you need to have this kind of uh, uh, stocks, you need to, uh, uh, you know, whatever the thing is. You need to have this experience, be able to travel this way. But it's basically, if you want to be happy, you need this sort of stuff. Very basic idea. Uh, the, the motto of this movement is the one who dies with the most toys wins, right? Okay, now, here's the point. That's a very simple idea, but here's the point. If, if Satan can get us to buy into this idea, big picture idea, there's a whole set of implications that comes with it. And, and I'm going to give you 10 examples, all right? Now, there's no way you can write this all down right now. It's not intended. And I realize some of you just realized that as like, I mean, you just felt to you like a challenge. I just threw it down for you right now. I am going to write these down, Mike. But um, uh, every service has been something like, you just watch me. You just try it. You can't talk fast enough that I can't follow you. Uh, so, but what I'm saying is, for most of us here, I'm not, include, I'm not designing this to write them all down. These are just sort of random examples. Okay, if you buy into the big picture idea, here is the implication of how it will come out in your life, all right? So let me give you 10 examples. This is real random. Number one, um, the first thing that happened, if you buy into this idea that, th- that the, having the right stuff makes you happy, that your primary goal in life is to, be get, to get the right stuff. So all your energy in life is going to be about getting the right stuff. So, so we all know people like this. Maybe you've been like this. Maybe you are like this. Life is about stuff. We got to get the uh, the, the new flat screen TV, then we have to get that, we have to get the new drapes, and then after we get that, we got to get, get the yard redone, then after we get to do that, we need to get the, this new Xbox game, then after we get that, and it just kind of goes from one thing to another. That's what life is. It's, life is a journey of acquisition. Okay? All our energy goes. Okay? A second implication is that if we buy into this, it can cause us to neglect the most important relationships in life. Uh, we, we've all seen this. Uh, the guy, he's just got to get to the next promotion because he's going to get the next raise, and that means he'll get more money. But meanwhile, wife and kids, no relationship. A third thing, it can get us to neglect our relationship with God. Uh, how many of us like, oh, I know I should be doing that. I need to be spending time with God, or I need to be serving his kingdom or whatever. But it's like, you know, but I, this whole lure of stuff just keeps us from it. A fourth one, it can cause marriage problems. Uh, Research shows it's usually either the top one or number two problems in most marriages that are having problems is money, right? Fighting over money. A, f- a fifth thing, it can drive us into debt. Uh, that we, we've got to have this stuff. We can't be happy, and so we make bad decisions. We buy things we can't afford, and all of a sudden we're in major debt. Uh, six, so here's an interesting one. It can cause you to look down your nose at certain kinds of people, right? The, the whole thing of favoritism that, uh, hey, they're not my kind of people. They they don't make enough or whatever. Or here's the the flip side of that, is you can be intimidated by certain kinds of people. You join a life group, and you just don't feel comfortable hanging out with these people because, man, they've got that that extra house in the cabin. They got the boat, and you're struggling. And you're you're in your little apartment trying to make ends meet. It just makes you feel uncomfortable. It's the same issue. It's saying it's about money, right? So it can affect your relationships that way. A seventh thing, uh, it can cause us to compromise our integrity. We'll cheat on our taxes, or we'll, we'll cheat on our hours at work, or we'll lie on our resume to get a better job, or whatever it can cause us. Uh, number eight, it can keep us from investing in God's movement, the kingdom. 
Uh, Jesus said, hey, lay up treasures in heaven. I'm, trust me on this one. Best investment you ever made. It's the only thing that's going to last. And uh, so use your financial resources. No, I can't afford it because I've got all this stuff I've got to pay for. Uh, number nine, it can be the key to our identity. It becomes the key to our identity. I mean, there's a whole, I mean, this is Madison, uh, Madison Avenue, right? It's like we live in a culture where we're constantly barraged with this lie all day long. If you buy this, if you, if you drink this drink, if you own this phone, if you drive this car, if you wear these clothes, if you take this vacation, you're in. You're a cool person. Okay, so we are constantly being barraged. This is the key to your identity. And so it can drive you. Uh, number 10, it can destroy your health. We've all known people that have the heart attack, the high blood pressure, whatever. Because why? Because it's all about they have to achieve to make this money so they get this certain kind of lifestyle. Now, here's what I want you to catch. The specifics aren't even important. All I'm trying to do is illustrate a principle that if I can get you to buy into one idea that the more stuff you have, the happier you will be, I can control all these other decisions in your life. You see how that works? See, this is spiritual warfare at the highest level. Why would I waste my time trying to get you just to neglect your family if I can sell you on this bigger idea and get you to ruin your whole life? You see? Much more effective. Um, now let's look at what Jesus says. Okay, so Jesus says about this in Luke chapter 12. He says, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. You know, watch out for this whole mindset. You know, that the more you have, the happier you'll be. He says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, your happiness in life isn't tied to what you have. That's not how it works. You see, the difference of big, big picture idea. Different. Look what the apostle uh, Paul writes to his young buddy Timothy, in 1 Timothy, pastor buddy. He says, uh, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Now that's the truth, right? That is the truth. I mean, you, you've seen the bumper stickers. I mean, there's no U-Haul that follows the hearse, Right? <laughs> Um, I, I want to create my own bumper sticker. It goes like this. The one who dies with the most toys dies. That, that's it. Um, okay, so he says, but if, so if we have food and clothing, we will be content. He says the secret of, Paul talks in Philippians 4 about the secret of contentment, learning to be content. He says, uh, people who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a trap. He says, this is a trap. This is dangerous and in many foolish and harmful desires. Now, this is how we often read this stuff. Oh, God doesn't want us to be rich. That's how we often read it. God doesn't want us to be rich. That's bad. Being rich is bad. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when you make money your goal in life, you open yourselves up to a lot of pain. It's a trap. It will pierce you. Look what he goes on to say. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. They've kind of wandered from God altogether, and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. That's not shame on you. Shame on you. That's a bad thing. Bad boy. You know, you no, no, no. This is, it's, a, it's a biblical warning. If you pursue this big picture idea, you will pierce yourself. It will destroy your life if you buy into this big picture. And let, as Christ followers, to the extent that we buy in to this big picture idea, we will pierce our lives. You see? You see how it gets? Okay. Let's look at a second, second example. Second big picture example is from the realm of science, and it's the word is uh, evolution. Now, 
When I say evolution, I am not talking about what in science we call microevolution, the way that a, a, a system or, or, or a, a, a organism kind of adapts to its environment. Obviously, that's true. It's part of the design nature. God's creative design nature. So we're not talking about microevolution, and we're not talking, I'm not even talking about what, what's often called theistic evolution. There's some Christians who believe that God created the world, but he did it through the process of evolution. And so I'm not talking about that, where, where God's involved in every step of the problem. What I'm talking about is the big picture idea that is very pervasive in our society that all that you see around you and all that we know is a result of a huge accident that happened a long time ago. And that all the beauty and all the complexity of this world that we see is a result of a random set of accidents, that's what a mutation is, that has happened over just a really long period of time. Now, that is one of the most audacious ideas in the history of the world. And here's the interesting thing, that if there's ever a generation that should rise up and recognize this, and I believe, I don't know if it's the next 20 years, the next 50 years, I believe it will happen. That if there's ever a generation that's better equipped to realize why this doesn't work, it's us. And the reason is because the more we know about the universe, the more we know how incredibly complex it is. Whether we're talking at a cosmological level of earth and stars and galaxies and whole worlds, or whether we're talking about a, at a biological level of our, sorry, our physical bodies, or whether we're talking about a chemical or a subatomic level, the one thing we've learned about the universe and where we know is it's not only incredibly complex, it's incredibly interconnected. The universe is like at every level is like this complex machine in which every part has to be working simultaneously for the machine to work. Like, let me give you an illustration. When I was a kid, I think these games are still around. The other two services have, have confirmed it. But um, there was a game called Mousetrap. Have you seen that? It's still around? Okay, good. It's, just, it's so comforting me to know that some things just never change in life. It's one of the few things. Okay, so... So the game mouse, if you've never seen the game, it's just, it's kids, it's a contraption. And, and you start a ball at one point in the game, at, the, at one point in the contraption, and it, it starts to roll, and it starts a chain reaction of events that each one triggers the next event. And at the very end, the mousetrap comes down on top of the mouse. Now, it's, it's complex in a simple way. I mean, it's nothing like our universe. It's complex, and it, but it's interconnected. Meaning that if any one part of that game is broken, the whole thing fails. Any one any link in the chain fails. It fails. Well, here's what we're discovering about our universe, that our universe is like that to a billionth degree. That it's incredibly interrelated at, at whatever level, whether it's the global, even the, the kind of the macro level or the most micro level, subatomic. And this is the favor the whole intelligent design movement has done for us, is help us to understand this. That at this, even at the most basic life, like a, a, a molecular biology, for example, or at that level, that there are these machines of life that are all interconnected. And that if one part of the system doesn't work, the whole system doesn't work. It breaks down. You see, there are not millions and billions of years for the system to develop because it would have to all develop simultaneously and just one part of it's broken, the whole thing's broken and things die. And if there's ever a generation that's in a place to rise up and say, this does not make sense, it is our generation. 
you see? And I believe that day will come. Okay, but here's the point. If Satan can convince a culture that there is no creator, there's a whole series of implications that come from that. And one of the biggest ones is there is no longer anyone to report to in our lives. We have no one to report to. That we are absolutely free in this universe. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want. There is no one to report to. There's no judge of the world. Okay? Now, on first glance, that might look kind of appealing. Like, well, that sounds pretty cool. I can do whatever I want. That's ultimate free. Wouldn't that be the essence of freedom? But the deeper you look, you begin to see the implications. If that's true, here's what it means. If it is true that everything around us, including your life and mine, is an accident, what it means is there is no purpose or meaning for your life. And on top of it, it means there is no such thing as right or wrong. Who's to say what's right or what's wrong? It's all an accident. There is no judge of the world to say this is right and this is wrong. And so there's really no one to say that Mother Teresa is any better or any worse than Adolf Hitler. It's all random. Now, can you see the power of this, of how Satan can destroy a whole culture? Because what he has done with this one thing of there is no creator, he's created a culture where we didn't really realize it for 50 years. But we didn't realize implications that now you have a culture that has no sense of meaning or purpose in life and there is no sense or right or wrong. And yet, if you have a a culture, it's impossible to create a healthy culture without concepts like loyalty, integrity, love, sacrifice, service, right? Take that away, and all you have is a self-absorbed culture bent on destroying itself. Welcome to the U.S. of A. We, we cannot even tell kids in a school anymore that is wrong. Stop and think about it in our culture, especially those of you in college. Think about that. You're going to resonate the most with this. Think about in your college classes. When was the last time a professor said, this is wrong? That is outside the language of our scope, the scope of our language anymore. The only things that are wrong in this country, very few things. Torture, maybe wrong. Uh, child molestation or abuse, wrong. Um, t- uh, anything that suggests that there actually is ultimate truth, wrong. Um, but there are very few things. And if you go back 50 years ago, there would have been lots of things that are wrong. Kids shouldn't uh, speak back to their teachers disrespectfully in school. That is morally wrong. You can't say that anymore. Sexual perversion. Can't say it's wrong anymore. You know, right now our culture is, hey, trying to legitimatize, hey, homosexuality is right, it's okay, it's fine, it's really okay. Can I tell you something? Uh, This is just... uh, Let me say, uh, if it's prophetic or whatever, the next thing that will come will be other forms of sexuality. Parents having uh, sex with kids. You know, there's things out there, the men love boys sites. So that will be the next thing. Uh, sex with animals. It will next be, the, the next thing will be, well, this is not wrong. This is the way we were born. It will, you see, it's just a domino effect because we have lost any concept of a creator. There is no one to define right and wrong. And so culture is, who defines it is we do. 
And as, we've, as sin becomes more pervasive in our culture, we change the rules. We, set the, we reset the thermostat. You see, that's what's happening in our culture. And so the whole basis of Western culture is in shambles. And we have the, no ability for anyone to direct us and say, this is the way, go in it, because there is no way. It's all an accident, you see? And to the extent we buy into that, we destroy ourselves in one fell swoop. Buy into one idea, and this is where it will lead. Okay, let's look at a third, third example. Oh, by the way, let's look at what uh, Paul says on that. Romans 1, before we go on. Paul says that this tendency to rid ourselves of a creator is deeply inherent in the fallen universe. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, you know, what he's like, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So men are without excuse. What Paul is saying is you cannot walk into the Yosemite Valley you cannot go to the Alps. You can't go to the Pacific Ocean. You can't go out on the desert floor on a dark night and look at those stars. You cannot do this and look at the complexity of our universe and say, it just happened. He says, you cannot do that except by a choice that you don't want to see what's there. And he says, and this is the human race, the story of the human race. How do we get rid of a creator so we can do what we want? You see, it's part of the fallen planet. All right, number three. The third, uh, third example is spirituality. Now, spirituality is not a bad word, um, but I'm going to, let me tell you what I mean by it in this context. By spirituality, I mean the kind of popular opin- opinion in our culture today, it's a kind of a popular approach to God and spiritual truth that basically goes like this. So when it comes to a matter of spiritual truth, that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Because after all, all paths lead to the same place. So it's kind of like we're, we're ascending this mountain, and you know, Christians are over here, and Islam's over here, and Mormons are over here. And so, you know, okay, so we're all, we're all going to, it all looks like we're on the right path, but the reality is we're all leading the same place. We're all going to end up there. When we get there, we'll see it's the same mount. So it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It's the, the modern big picture approach to spirituality, okay? Now, again, this is, again, a very audacious approach. And the reason it is is because stop and think about it. This is just not how relationships work. Like, if I want a relationship with you, I'm really not free to define you however I want, right? Okay, so so let's say that I want to have a relationship with you. I say, I want to be your friend. You say, great. You say, okay, so I... I'm really into sports. I would really love it if you'd be into sports. You know, um, well, sorry, I'm not into sports. Like, yes, you are. Uh, yes, you are. I'm very sincere about it. I, I want you into sports, you know. And by the way, um, I would like you, you you're going to vote for Hillary in the next election, right? Like, no, I'm not voting for Hillary. Yes, 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 you are. You need to vote for Hillary. And, uh, and, and I want you to like iPhones, all right? I realize that uh, you think they're a ripoff, but I want you to really like them because I'm into iPhones. And uh, let's see, you know, what else? You see what I'm saying? And so you go, wait a sec, wait a sec. That's not who I am. If you want to have a relationship with me, you've got to relate to the real person. You can't just make me in your own image. And then, okay, now we'll have a relationship. You see what I'm saying? Okay, when we come to God, we come and we say, 
okay, well, here's, got, here's what I would like to believe about you. Uh, I would like you to believe that uh, well, all paths lead to the same place. You good with that? Okay, okay, well, oh, that's okay. I'm sincere. All right, so, um, now, God, I, I really, this whole uh, 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 kind of sex thing, it's just bugging me. So, we've come to the conclusion, you good with that? Okay, well, well that's okay. We're sincere. You, you, you see, you can't just define a person however you want and then relate. If you are, you're in delusion, Right? And why would we think our relationship with God is in he, he is who he is. And, and so we adapt. He doesn't adapt. In fact, there in your note sheet, there's an example of this from the New Testament where uh, the Apostle John is talking about a group of people in his day that were trying to redefine God in their own image. He says, so here's the truth. First John 1.5, he says, God is light. In other words, he's everything that's right and good and true. God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. And so if we claim to have fellowship with him, yeah, God and I are tight, we have a relationship, and yet I walk in the darkness, we lie, and we don't live by the truth. You can't define God however you want. That's the essence of idolatry. The essence of idolatry is creating God in our own image. You see, this whole movement we have towards all paths, it's just the modern version of idolatry. I'll define, and here's what, it, but if Satan can get us to buy into this one idea, look at some of the implications that come out of that. Number one, first of all, I don't need to seek for the true God anymore because I can make God whoever I want. So it undercuts any need in my life to search after what is true about God. Number two, if anyone comes into my life and claims to know something about the true God and I don't like what they're selling, I can just say, that's fine for you. That's your God. I've got my God. So what has Satan done? He's isolated me. I'm not seeking from the real God, and there's no one who can tell me anything I don't want to hear about the real God. You see? I'm just happy with my own little God created my image. You see, let me tell you something about this. Satan could care less whether you are a partier or the most religious person in the world. Care less. He could care less whether you're a Mormon, a Buddhist, Hindu. There may be difference. There's only one thing he wants. He wants to keep you away from the true God who can set you free. Because he just wants to destroy you. And so there are a million paths that are wrong he doesn't care which one you take. He just wants to keep you from the path that's going to set you free. See, there, there only is one God, and he's the real God, and you have to deal with him. He's the only one who has the power to give you life because all life comes from him. And so all he wants to do is keep you from connecting with the real God who can change your life. That's all he cares about. How you get, go about it, great. So for this person, I'll keep him away by partying. This way, I'll keep them away from intellectualism. This person, I'll keep them away by religion. You say, really? Would Satan really use religious teaching to keep people? Yes. In fact, look on your note sheet. Look what Paul says about some of the false teachers of his day. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They're masquerading as 
apostles of Christ, and catch this, and no wonder, for Satan himself, remember that's our topic, Satan's tactics, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan presents himself, hey, here's a new age philosophy, here's this religion, here's this thing, and yet he presents himself as an angel of light, because as long as it keeps you away from the one person who can help you, he's happy. Okay, so what does this mean? Bottom line of this big picture thing. Here's the bottom line. What I want you to catch today is that when it comes to spiritual warfare, the warfare at the highest level is not the level of individual temptation. It's the level of big picture ideas. And here's what it means for you as a follower of Jesus. If you want to win this war, what has to happen is you have to get good at recognizing the enemy's propaganda and you have to learn to deprogram your mind from the way the culture thinks and to reprogram your mind the way Jesus thinks. That's the key. And so there on your note sheet is a section called The Secret of Success, Changing the Way We Think. And I just want to talk about this is the key to the battle then to, in, in this area of strategies of uh, big ideas. And I want you to take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And you may be familiar with this verse, but I think it's going to take on some new light. Because remember, we've been saying all day, this world is the dark world. It's the one led by the ruler of darkness. He controls it by his th- the thought patterns. And so let's look and see what he says now in Romans 12 about what it takes to win this battle. Verse 2. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Now, you might want to underline that, the pattern of this world. This world has a pattern. Uh, I think in terms of the paradigms of this world. This world has a way of doing life. It's got a pattern. It's got an approach, a paradigm. So don't conform to those paradigms of this world, but be transformed or changed by the renewing of your what? Mind. You see this? The key to our transformation is the renewing of our mind. It says, then, once that happens, you'll be able to test and approve. I like the word experience. Begin to experience what God's will is for your life. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God has a plan for your life. But to experience that, you have to deprogram the paradigms of this world. You have to reprogram the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, his word, you see. We have to see life as it really is. So what does this mean? It means that ultimately then the secret of your success is as followers of Jesus, as a church, we have to get in the habit of every area of our life is saying, is what I believe about this, is this what my culture taught me? Whether that culture is coming through my mom and dad or my work or my professors or wherever that, where it's coming from, TV, media. Is this what my culture is teaching me or is this what Jesus and his word is teaching me? It's the only way out, you see. Uh, so is this the way my culture teaches me to do marriage or is this the way Jesus teaches me to do marriage? Is this the way my culture teaches me to date or is it the way that Jesus teaches me to date? Is this the way the culture deals, teaches me to deal with my finances or run my business or do my relationships or handle conflict? Or it doesn't matter what the issue is. We have to get in the habit of asking the question, is this idea, is this from the culture or is it from Christ? 
And only to the extent that we learn to think like Christ will we experience transformation and experience God's plan for our life. Can I tell you something? There are a lot of followers of Jesus. They love Jesus. They care about Jesus. And they are very, they are very little different than they were 20 years ago because they have never changed the way they thought. They're still thinking just like the culture, even though they've come to Christ and they love Christ. You see, it's only as our thinking is changed, our big picture ideas are changed. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the next passage here on your note sheet, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, he talks about this battle for our minds, and he uses warfare language. Look what he says there in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. For though we live in the world, I mean, whereas Christians, we're in the world, we're not to be of the world, but we're in the world. We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. This is warfare language, isn't it? We're taking ground. We're demolishing strongholds, the enemy's forts. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, the truth about life. And catch us, and we take we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is the warfare language, isn't it? In our lives, we will learn to take captive every thought in our life. How would I look at this? How do I look at that? How do I look at this situation? What have I been taught? Even men and women, often what we've been taught when the church is not Jesus stuff. I don't know if you realize that. Often things that a lot of you are raised with, they have nothing to do with Jesus. They have everything to do with tradition. And even in the church of Jesus, we have to continue to go back to Jesus and back to the word. Is this something that is really true? Or is this something that's the culture of Christian culture stuff got passed on to me? And somehow I believed it's true. And it's not true, you see. We have to come back always to the word. And that's why Jesus says there in your note sheet, John 8, if you abide in my word, big if, if you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And that's why here at Rocky Peak, we're building a church that's always knee-deep in the Word. Because it's the Word that has the power to set us free, and it's the Word alone that has the power to recreate our minds. And it's why it's so important that we're here every week. It's why it's so important that we take 45, 50 minutes every week, unpack the Word. Right? What, were we doing? We're, we're, what we're doing is we're taking out the old way of thinking, we're replacing it with a new way of thinking. It's why we meet in life groups. We gather around the word and say, what are you hearing from us? What am I hearing from this? How does the word reply to our lives, you see? It's the word of Jesus that has the power to transform us and nothing else, you see? And so that's why we have to be knee-deep in the word in our lives because the Lord knows we are... We are knee-deep or chest-high or whatever in all the false messages here every day, right? So, so Dallas Willard puts it this way. Last quote. Christian spiritual formation, that's kind of a fancy word for talking about the process of becoming like Christ. Christian spiritual formation is inescapably, it's a matter of recognizing in ourselves, in our lives, the idea systems of evil that govern this present age and the respective culture, like our culture or various cultures, they constitute life away from God. That's the needed transformation is very largely a matter, catch this, of replacing in ourselves those idea systems 
with the idea systems that Jesus Christ embodied and taught and with the culture of the kingdom of God. This is truly a passage from darkness to light. And I'm telling you, it is spiritual warfare at the highest level. Let's pray. Father, we want to be those people. God, we want to be your people, separate from this world, not in like trendy, trite little ways, don't do this, don't do that, but we want to be people who think about life totally different and the mind of Christ. And so we pray whether it's in our own lives or whether it's as a church, God, that you would teach us how to do this warfare at the highest level, that we would be able to be transformed and we'd be able to experience your perfect will for our lives, which is good and pleasing and perfect because our minds have been renewed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Apostle Paul says that you've received now as followers of Jesus, you've received, received the Spirit, not of the world, but the Spirit's from Christ, so you can know and realize the things that are freely been given you in Christ. He says now the non-believing world, the unbelieving man, he can't really receive these things. He can't perceive these things because they're spiritually discerned. He says, you know, after all, you have the mind of Christ, right? That's what it's all about. The following Jesus is a lot like waking up from a dream. You know, I last few months have seen several people here as they've come to Christ and watched their whole way of thinking about life change dramatically overnight. It's because they're waking up from a dream and coming up to the real life, like seeing life for the very first time. But that's not something that just happens when we first come to Jesus. That's a process. It goes on the rest of our life, seeing more and more looking into his face, being transformed by his glory, as Paul says, from glory to glory. It's a process. May we pursue that together. You know, uh, next week we'll continue this series, and I realize that some of you don't really struggle with any temptations. Um, So if you've been looking for a good week to take off, you know, it's like, wow, we have the Marriage Matrix series, and I don't want to take a week off, but next week will be a great week for you to take off if you don't have any temptations. But for the rest of us, um, it will be a great week to be here. Because we're going to talk about this tactic of temptation, how it works, what Satan's after, the lines he feeds us, how the Spirit comes alongside of us to walk us through that to, uh, and prepare us for that warfare, how to, how to kind of outmaneuver him, I guess, in the midst of the temptation. And so I hope you can be with us uh, next week as we come together and continue this series on the war. May this week, may the Lord be with you. May you experience the mind of Christ in new in exciting, mind-blowing ways, ways that you've never known before, as you come to see life the way he sees it and the freedom and the beauty that that brings. May you come to know him in a deeper and more exciting and life-fulfilling way this week. And then we'll see you next week as we talk about the strategies, part two, the enemy brings the strategy of temptation. God bless you. I love you. See you next week. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.